COVID again. I've got COVID again. Now my wife's making me live in the dog cage. We call it the Como cage. I'm in the basement. I had COVID in March. And then I got a shot of the Vax in August. And then I got the second shot in September. And then I got the COVID again. I don't get what's going on. I'm no denier. I know what it does. I'm not afraid to take the Vax. You know, in my misspent youth, I will meet a guy and get packages of powder not knowing what the hell was in those. I'm not worried about that. I believe the Vax helps mitigate death and the symptoms. Data shows you that. But I don't know about you out there. I don't know where to get a test. I don't know what kind of mask to use. Everybody's bombarding me with numbers. And I'm just getting pissed. Am I wrong, Karen? No, Charlie, you're not wrong. And that's uh, part of what we want to talk about today. Everything is uh, a bit confusing for people. They're looking for answers and they're not able to find them. But we got some answers today. We, we've got some answers today. We're going to talk to retiring Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence from the 14th District. What is redistricting doing in terms of Black representation? We're going to find out. We're going to also talk to uh, Ed Sarpolis, our official pollster from uh, Target Insight. He's going to tell us about redistricting and what that means. We're going to talk to Steve DeLee, get an update on the nursing home deaths, the count, the lawsuit. Where are we? What does that mean? Where are we going? Where are we headed? And then we're going to pay homage to death of the Tony King today on the No BS News Hour with Charlie LaDuff live from his dog's cage, his COVID cage. Como cage. Como cage. <laughs> hey, hey, Mark. Yes. How, how mad was your wife that I've got COVID? Uh, more concern. Maybe more mad because uh, we had to use a test on you. <laughs> Dude, I mean. That shit's harder to get than Bitcoin. Uh, you can't find them anywhere. All the now, deer all have them. I don't remember much, but I, I, I can't remember everything because everything's uh, the news cycle changes every two days. So when it's all said and done, besides Trump just popping off, we'll talk about January 6th. It is the anniversary. But in his COVID response, what was the main thing people were bitching about? Lack of testing. Right off the bat, it was lack of test testing. Lack of testing. Mm -hmm. I thought it was any test now. I thought it was him telling people to to use a bleach. That was a big big, big issue from from his uh, discussion. No, but Trump did say the fact we had increases in COVID because there was too many tests. Tests were creating the increases in COVID. But right out of the no. gate, it was lack of testing. Big time. Yes, and yet here but we are. Mm -hmm. But he actually said, slow the testing down. Please. We'll have that testing. See, that's what this program is about. We just corrected the rest. So tests, taking tests, not taking. I can't get a test. I'm in a cage. Mark's wife's mad. Don't wear a cloth mask. Wear a cloth mask. You know what? It's so weird in here. It's so weird in my house. My wife, God bless her, brings me berries this morning. But she's done up like Florence Nightingale. It was a trip. <laughs> You know what I mean? She's mad that I'm in the bed. So now I'm in the cage. You would have thought 
I brought a raging case of syphilis home. Breaking news. Double or bullshit. Double or bullshit. No bullshit. Well, Congresswoman, that's the end of a great political career. Thanks for showing up on the No BS Good to have you back. Thank you for having me. And please, um, my prayers are with you. Um, and with your wife always for being your spouse. But I do want you to please do everything you can to uh, get better. The quarantine is very important. The poor dog has now lost his home. I'm sorry about that. Well, hold on a second. Honestly, you need to be on here. right back in. See how that works? Good. <laughs> I got no place to go. Nobody loves me. <laughs> Um, okay, so look, real quick, um, I want to do this before we get going. Karen told you what the program's going to be. But uh, if you guys could queue up a little bit of the teaser red, here's what we're doing. Listen, you potential advertisers out there, that's the biggest growing news program in Michigan as they're all starting to shrink because you're getting people like Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, Ed Sarpolis, um, uh, Steve DeLee, my lawyer, and just beautiful content. We will. We're opening an advertising firm as well. Ooh, all right. You want give, give me a little tease here. Here's comedian Detroit Red with an homage to the new Johnny Depp Dior campaign. This one, it's called Savage. This one is for the American Coney Island called Sausage. <laughs> well, that's Johnny Depp. That's not Red, is it? In the wilderness, fearless and human, Sauvage, the new elixir, Dior. That's a more handsome version of Red. Right? Yeah. Now, where's Red? Give me a teaser, Red. Let's play the quick, yeah, beginning of them, Joe. I don't know why I'm in the <laughs> desert in my underpants. I don't know why these wolves are following me. But I need sausage. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. More on okay, that. Okay. Uh, uh, real quickly, uh, no bullshit news hour is give me the no wacky music, please. Mm-hmm. We're going to ask the Congress what it looks like the Fed's going to raise interest rates. Listen, you got to get a strategy, you got to get a plan. Maybe you're not a big-time city official who's got a lifelong pension. Look out for your family. Call Luke Nowacki at 248-663-4748. Grow your assets from annuities to individual retirement accounts to college savings. Make the call. The politicians and your children dependent on you. Bro, is it my connection or are we good? Uh, Your connection's a little... uh... It's it's a little weak right now. 
I'm hoping it'll strengthen up. Okay. And uh, listen, it's a new year and mortgage rates are likely to increase soon. Act now. This is your chance to refinance and lock in a low rate. Go to Hall Financial. Call them right now and get started with a free five-minute mortgage review in as little as five minutes. Hall Financial can take a look at your financial situation and help you lower your monthly mortgage payment. At Hall Financial, the number one priority is client service with over 4,000 five-star reviews. Why should you go anywhere else? Go where Mark goes, go where I go. Not only is Hall Financial going to treat you like family, but they can also close your loan in eight business days or less, less than two weeks, people. They're the fastest in the industry. Get started today, call 866-CALL-HALL or chat with them online at callhallfirst.com. Let's get we're gonna do a haul. We're gonna do a haul commercial. Oh, we should, yeah. Yeah, we're going to. All right. Brenda Lawrence, 14th District, uh, longtime public servant. I mean, school board, Brenda, Southfield City Council, yes. if I'm, I'm not mistaken, the Southfield mayor. And the congresswoman of the 14th district, who the Democratic Party did not want to run, she felt she had what it took and won it. Now you're retiring. Why, madam? In my estimate, I got to say it. You're one of the most capable, honest, interesting, strong representatives that we have in this entire state. I'm not bullshitting. I don't have to. You're retiring. You don't come on much. I don't kiss ass. Why are you leaving? Well, there, there's a, a, it was a series of million little cuts. Um, I am uh, in my 30th year. I celebrate my 50th wedding anniversary. And my husband asked the question, when is our turn? Uh, few people recognize when you're in public service and you take that oath, I like to give you the visual. When we had that huge power outage and everyone was out power, I left my family in my home, which was dark, and went to City Hall to take care of my constituents. That is your life. And your family takes the second seat. They are definitely not the first priority. And so that to me was sobering and it was a question I had to ask. I've lost two sisters in a 12 month period. And I, am my, I have no siblings left. My mortality is slapping me in the face. I have no uncles, no aunts, no sisters, no brothers. My mother and father are gone. I have less years ahead of me than I have behind me. And I can tell you the climate of the last four years under Donald Trump was exhausting. It was constant. It was like a water hose in your face. And we went through a very hard election. And then we had January the 6th, a period of time of the thing that I live for and I believe in so fundamentally about our democracy was literally physically attacked. Um, I believe in this country and I am honored to have 30 years, Charlie, 30 years of service and have learned so much. And there comes a time, there's a time and season in everyone's life. And it's time for me to turn the page. I'm not going away, thank God I'm healthy. I want to continue to be relevant and engaged. And that's my promise to the people of Michigan and the 14th. 
I could go on and on, but I, I know Karen wants to get in there. So I'm going to go ahead, Karen. I could just. No, that's okay. I mean, and and the Congresswoman knows that I've known her for a long time. I have the utmost respect yes. for her personally, professionally. Um, I mean, but, you know, I was just while you were speaking and, and I'm thinking back over your career, I, I'm interested in you sharing how. Um, your congressional seat and and that level of federal politics differed than maybe what you did at the Southfield at the local level. I mean, a lot of times people, like you said earlier, you know, people maybe you maybe you make it look easy, or people are somehow not privy to just what the demands are and and what the expectations are. Just a thumbnail on you know the the difference, whether you were surprised, um, you know, or just how it differed from from where you began. Karen, the 14th district gave me the amazing opportunity of representing diverse population. When I say diverse on every level, I had to grow a rural Oak township. I had Detroit and I had West Bloomfield. I had the largest black population, the largest Jewish population. I have a strong Indian population. I have Muslim, I have every religion you can think of, I represented. So I've been in synagogues, temples, and to, um, churches from Church of God in Christ to Southern Baptist. And the thing that I want my legacy to be is that I took time and I was deliberate to ensuring that all those voices knew that I heard them and that I would speak up. Immigration was a big issue and I represent Southwest Detroit and Pontiac and the Indian community and the Arab community I represent Pam Tramick, which at one time had the largest number of Muslim representatives in their elected body. Now is completely Muslim from the, from the mayor to all the city council. And when they come to me and speak to me about issues, I have to hear it and respond to it and be respectful of it. And so I will tell you what's the difference. Local politics, you pretty much have a homogeneous population. While I was best blessed in Southfield to have a strong black and Jewish population. But when my area expanded under Congress, it challenged me on a regular basis. How do you fight for protecting the tax status of millionaires to protecting the, the least of us so they can get simple things like food for their children, that they can have housing, you know, and I, you know, I had to balance that. The good thing about local government, I was in Southfield, my tax base was 60% corporate. Few people knew that. So for me to be engaged and connected to my corporate, the people who they say are the enemy, the CEOs, no, I had to sit at the table and be in the room because my city did not survive unless they survived. And I have a respect for corporate America that some will just like to demonize. Yes, they've got their problems and I don't have any problem calling them out. But if we don't have a strong economic base in America, we don't have jobs. We don't have innovation. We don't have manufacturing. So you, to me, if you can't get in the middle of this and be able to have to spin your head around every five seconds to hear this issue, fight for that issue, stand up for the truth in another issue. And 
you know, I'm sorry, Charlie, but one other thing that frustrates me, some politicians, and Donald Trump was one of them, come on, Black people, what do you have to lose? You're broke, you're uneducated, and you're unemployed. Well, guess what? I represented one of the strongest middle-class Black communities in this state, and it will, you know, equate to around the country. And Is this Black people are educated, they are employed, and they are middle class. Does this, is this party you think into, look, they, they just redrew all the congressional districts. If you're mm-hmm. not, you stay tuned. If you're not quite sure, we'll have Ed to explain it. They're redrawn now in, in a way that um, there might not be majority black district at all. It's very pot. You're the only African-American representing mm-hmm. Michigan in Congress. We could have zero. They've flip-flopped basically your district, right? So now you used to do like the east side of Detroit and the gross points and Southfield and across the top there. And now you'd have to do Western Wayne County. Is it part of this? Like, I don't want to introduce myself to a whole new group of people. I'm, I'm tired. It's, it's time to go on vacation with my husband. Is it that we've got five people moving around looking for a job and you're not about that? I love a good campaign. Um, Ed knows and have witnessed some of the campaigns I've been in. I've been in a total of 12 in my career and I've won 10 of them. I, I am a person that just comes to life during that time. And the record, my district was divided into three. You know, Haley Stevens and Levin have stepped up to what they call the Oakland County seat. A large majority of that is what I represent now. In addition to that, the east side of Detroit, downtown, uh, southwest Detroit, that, that's my district as well, the gross points. And then you look at Southfield and you look at um, uh, West Bloomfield and all these other places. So I had a choice of three. But it's, my, it's time, uh, Charlie. It's time. I, I hope people understand I am not a punk. I don't run away from a good fight. I wouldn't be here today if I didn't have the courage to keep my heels on, put the Vaseline on my face and roll up my sleeve and fight for what I believe in. So it had nothing to do with fear. But the thing that you say, Charlie, about being the only African-American weighed heavy on me, but I'm very happy to say I've seen, (laughs) uh, Karen asked me early, oh my goodness, the number of African-Americans who are stepping up to run for Congress and I will be very active and very vocal in supporting an African-American candidate to replace me, to pass over the baton to. Hmm. Okay. I bet a lot of people are calling. Everybody wants your oh, A lot. Some you never would have expected. And, Ooh, you know, I, I say, I say hmm. this not out of arrogance, but... I don't know if I did too good of a job making this job look easy. It is not easy. And a lot of times people just see the the cameras. They see you on TV and, oh, my gosh, you got that title. This is hard work. And this next election, Ed probably is going to talk about it. I don't know um, what this next election and presidential election will look like, but it's going to be even harder for us. And it's more pressure on us as Democrats 
to fight for what we feel is the moral compass of this country for those democratic values and, and issues that we believe are fundamental to us having a country of freedoms and of rights. They're under attack now with the failure for the Senate to act. Does that not keep me awake at night? Absolutely. How in the world can you not just sit there and pass over voting rights after what we saw we went through, whether you love Donald Trump or not? That is insane. Voting rights, if we don't have voting rights, we don't have a democracy. Can I, can I respectfully ask you this, Congresswoman? I mean, when, when I think about it, and I think about this, um, uh, just how much we are still trying to resolve and do the same things that we're asking for now are the same things that we've been asking for as Democrats, as people of color, as black people in this country for 50 years. And at some point we have to sit back and ask, why are we still working on the same things with so little progress? Oh, I don't ask that question, Karen. I said, oh my goodness, I didn't know that the fights of my grandparents would be my fight today. And I, if, if nothing else, I want my legacy to be whenever the issue confronts its head, when the, 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 the nasty evil head of injustice sticks up, it's like a, well, that game where you're constantly hitting the, hitting the head to knock it down. We're gonna, unfortunately, this is what America has become. We have now issues, Karen, just like you said, my grandmother fought for voting rights. Not to mention my parents. And now here we are again. And so I have to push all that emotion aside and get to the issue. And that is we will have rights and freedoms in this country that our forefathers set down, whether they envisioned a time like this or not, that we fight for them and to ensure that we are a democracy and a, and a country that... Um, Live true to one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Congresswoman, what uh, what do you say to these people? Because I saw someone say this because it's politics and everyone's going to speculate. Right after you said you would not run for re-election, um, Representative Rashida Tlaib said, I am. And what do you what do you say to those people that say, oh, she's not running because uh, they'd rather have Tlaib, the Democratic Party? No, they wouldn't. Give me a break. I am not. Yeah, right on, man. That runs away from that. <laughs> Rashida Tlaib is, is an elected member of Congress. She has the right to run wherever she feels. Um, Rashida's decision did not bear on me, and my decision, Good. what Rashida did, did not bear on me. She is elected. You know, you can agree with her politics or not. But she is sitting in the halls of Congress because the people sent her there. So, you know, I ran races. I ran against Brooks Patterson. Come on. Uh, I'm not afraid of a person. I run because I believe in things and I'm making this decision being of sound mind. I'm making a decision to join my my husband of 50 years to turn the page and to still have leadership in this country. Um, as many years as God gives me the opportunity. Oh, and let me give you a little math here, okay? From from okay. The, the the real deal. If you if you're looking at it, Mark, the Democratic Party would much prefer Brenda Lawrence 
to Rashida Tlaib. Brenda Lawrence, not divisive, roll up the sleeves, yep. get it done, not playing the cameras, no offense to Tlaib. Brenda Lawrence, and not moving her address to go find a job. Yep. Oh, no. I think this is Brenda Lawrence's decision, and I respect it. Now, last time you were on the program, Brenda, you said something deep, which really made me respect you. And let's take it to January 6th of, um, I get all the years confused because of COVID, 2021. You said to me in November of 2019, I said to you, what do you think about the impeachment? Now, you said, I think it's counterproductive. It's divisive. Let's censure the guy. Let's move on and let's elect somebody else. I thought deep. And it proved to be true what you said. It proved to be true. But you caught shit. I caught shit. And you have to soften it, it between me and you. It's, it's like politics. You got pressure from the party, right? Because it was taken out of context. But it's true, right? You spoke true then. And it came to be true. Am I wrong? You know, Charlie, um, we're now going through the January 6th uh, investigation. Um, the truth has taken on that whole statement of what is true, has taken on a whole new life of itself. Um, there was a time when I would speak truth and it would be validated. We're in an environment where when you speak the truth and sometimes when you have convictions, it is ripped to shreds and people attack it. Um, it's, it's disheartening to watch McCarthy and to watch um, the, Senate, the Senate minority leader say something different than what they said when they were catching their breath after running down the hall from life being threatened, the most bipartisan day on the Hill because Republicans and Democrats ran together for their lives. They were afraid. They didn't sit there and say, oh, Donald Trump sent these people. Eh, you run if you want to. I'm good. Tell them to come on in. They ran for their lives. And now, even though we have clips of it, it's being told a totally different way. It's, it's the reality I live in, unfortunately, now in politics. But, Charlie, I don't, I can't. I can't labor on it because every day I have to wake up and fight another fight. Uh, and, and just really be committed to the, what I perceive as the truth and hold people accountable for what they do. Congresswoman, what are you going to look for in the person that you endorse going forward? Well, one of the things that uh, is not lost on me, being an African-American, I want a person who knows what that means. Um, for me, it means acknowledging our past, but being open to our future and embracing the present, not have your head stuck in the sand and say, oh, black people got it made. Look, you got a black president. So why don't we move on? Or, you know, I hear Republican African-Americans say, look, I worked hard. I made it. Everybody else can do the same thing. Stop whining. You know, I need someone that can have the heart of the forefathers who came before us, who knew sometimes I had to give up my life so that my children 
will have rights and freedoms. I want someone that strong. I want someone who's educated, who can be able to dissect laws and policies. And I need who can communicate without losing their mind. Because this there are times when I want to scream from the rooftops. But as a representative, I have to process the anger, the disappointment, and also celebrate the successes. I need someone that can sit in the temple and in the mosque and in the synagogues and the churches. That's important to me. Do you have anybody in mind that you want to share? Next week, I will be telling you who that person is. Wait, 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 wait. I'm still (laughs) deciding. And if you got I'll any room, to you too, Charlie. If you got any room, I'm just. Gonna if you can get out of the dog, if you can get out of the dog pen, we'll talk. <laughs> now look here. Here's the thing. I'm going to leave it. I, I promised you I'd get you out of here, but you're welcome to stay. Can you ask the president to get some tests out? And <clears throat> and here's some ivermectin from my dog, <laughs> ivermectin. Now, I do not recommend. Don't kick me off Facebook. I'm not recommending. You take the dog's heartworm medicine. I do not condone this statement. I do not condone this statement. But it's getting to the point I'm going to have to nibble a half of one of these because I'm half a wolf. I mean, geez, oh, Pete, what am I going to do over here? Tell the president we need some tests. Well, I just, before I leave, I just want to say thank you, Charlie. Uh, it's important for our democracy that all voices are heard. You are unique voice. And... Um, I just want to thank you for staying true to the mission of what media should be in America, where people are respected, even if they have a different viewpoint. Also want everyone to know that I am so grateful for the opportunity that the people have given me. It wasn't one person. It wasn't just me. It was a collaboration of trust and the vote of the people. And as I turn the page, I forget representation matters and who you send. Because I had a very, very close person in tears tell me they voted for Donald Trump. They said, I thought that was just theater during the campaign and he wouldn't be that bad. During a campaign, people show you who you are. And if you're truly engaged, you will see who those candidates are. Look at their record. And please vote for a person who will represent you and give you representation that you can be proud of. Thank you so much. Wow. (laughs) Really, thank you for your service. And I would say, we're just mad. We need some representation and not by the political parties because you were up there in Washington. This is a bunch of narrow-shouldered, square-bottomed twerps that attack each other on Twitter, and you don't have any idea that the power goes out and the basements get flooded and that the congresswoman or man is simply our mayoral representative to Washington. So if you're going to take the good woman's seat and it's not hers to give, then don't forget about us. Yes. and. By the way, we're not the media, we're the press. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. There's, There's, a difference. Difference. There's a difference. Anyway, thank you so much. Your media create, but your your press creates media. Thank you very much, Charlie. Mm-hmm.
I my can ladies. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Bye-bye, everyone. Be safe and please feel Bye-bye. better, Charlie. Now, we're going to get to Ed Sarpolis, <clears throat> but before we do, we want to tell you about ADR. You know, all done right, all districting redone. <laughs> We've re- redrawn congressional districts, and they're a mess. I don't get it. Ed's going to explain it, but they should have called ADR consultants. What? Right? Yeah. That's who you call when you need to get something done right, on time, on budget, in the correct way. Now, they don't normally do congressional redistricting. They do IT, demolition, rehab, project management, owner representative service, technology deployments, but they get it done right. Make sure your bottom line comes out right. If you're having trouble, you can't negotiate the government. You call Barry Ellen Tuck, who's ethical, honest, smart. You all know that at 248-318-9424. Mention a no bullshit news and tell them you need to get your shit fixed. Barry Ellen Tuck. Can do, get it done guy. For all your development needs, everything, right there, just call him. He's available. Now, Ed, Ed Sarpolis, are you the CEO of Target Insight? I'm the founder, CEO, and president of Target Insight. Oh, I, knew, I knew that. And the official pollster of the No Bullshit News Hour. Correct? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> You're welcome. I bestow. Now, Ed, quickly. Every 10 years, the congressional districts and the state and the right in the House, and they get redrawn. We're on that 10th year. What has happened? Give me the congressional layout first. Oh, well, very quickly for your, for your viewers, I've been doing this since 1986. In the 80s, I'm currently working in the city of Chicago representing the Black Caucus and their redistricting efforts, be sure that they're represented. And when I came back from uh, Chicago after working with the Black Caucus and drawing the redistrict lines, I thought I was in Texas. Uh, this was back in July, August. I listened to the commission talk. I said, this is what Texas is doing. And we're accusing Texas of voter suppression of uh, the black community. And that's what we got here in Michigan. Uh, two years ago, I was talking with you and I said, what was going to happen, happened. It happened. We, I said the commission was going to screw things up. What happened was the fact is that when the commission people, the 13 people that joined the commission, they had their own agenda when they were on the commission. Their commission was to take out political gerrymandering out of the process. But the, the, the Constitution said not to not to use racial gerrymandering. They use racial gerrymandering to use black voters as pawns to achieve their political purpose, uh, basically creating more moderate to liberal districts. So basically, they can fend off Republican takeover. OK, so why is this important? Because typically over the last since 1980, whether you're Republican or Democrat in Michigan, the first thing that we did, whether you're Republican or Democrat in control, you drew the black majority minority districts first under voting rights. OK, that's the let's first pause, thing we did. Let's pause, let's pause there real quick. Since the 80s, you're yes. this, this game of politics. Yes. The first thing that the Republicans and the Democrats would sit down and do because of the 1965 Voting Rights Act was Correct. draw the black districts. Yes. Okay. Or have the black community help us draw the districts. It wasn't necessarily we did it. The majority with the black, black districts. Yes, the majority yes. black, because that's yes, what we yes. thought the law said. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. Now, under law, you can't guarantee a black district. You can't guarantee proportionality, but you have to draw as many as you, you think it can be effective. Okay. So what's the difference here? Secondly, under voting rights stuff, you're supposed to represent community of interest. Okay. Well, this commission 
never defined what they meant by community of interest. They never published any guidelines or rules. They said they're protecting community of interest. Well, the largest community of interest in the state of Michigan is the black community. It was never on their list. They wouldn't, they wouldn't divide Dearborn, but they're willing to divide the black community. They're protecting a certain East Asian group of people in Westland. They don't want to split them up, but they're willing to split up the black community because the black community provide them the pawns that they needed to, to achieve their political direction. So you're saying this 13-member committee, that the majority basically wanted to create some safe Democratic areas? And Republican areas with purple districts in the middle, yes. Okay, and so... At the expense of the black community. And so, so because in this way, I'm just going to say it, man, tell me, you know, so sort of well-to-do liberal whites figure the blacks will go along with them. And if we draw it this way, pat on the head, patronizing, you'll come with me. I know it's good for you. Is that what we're seeing? Yeah, but they were not all whites. Also, there were there other people of other ethnicities part of this process. It wasn't just whites. You got to be careful on that. OK, okay. it was okay. other racial ethnic groups that were part of this process. They're looking for political gains not the voting rights. So what happened is, is I'll give you a case in point. 10 years ago, when I was part of the process and proposing plans in the, in the news and free press, we ended up with two black majority congressional districts. They didn't, they have drawn none this time around. No, wait, oh, oh, wait, wait. I thought the Voting Rights Act was to help enfranchise African-American voters that didn't have any. And that, that's why Martin Luther King Jr. and everybody uh, uh, crossing the uh, Petraeus Bridge got their ass beat and that the Voting Rights Act comes out of it and that these representative districts would not disappear. I've never heard of a majority black district disappearing, especially in Michigan, but we had two and now we have none. Is this even Correct. legal? Well it, well, it is and it isn't legal. First of all, under voting rights, you can't guarantee a black seat. Okay, but what problem okay. was the fact is you can't take away what was given to them before. Okay, so under the voting rights law, if because of drawing lines, maybe they could eliminate one black board, black district, and ended with one congressional district. They didn't even try. Let me. Well, here's how bad it was. When I came back from Chicago, and I was presented the maps, I said, "This is crazy." Within one hour of taking the maps that they put online for us to review, I converted one of their maps and I created two black majority congressional districts within one hour. That tells me that they took no time. If I could do it in one hour, they had six months to do it. So this was a more of an intentional process of doing that. Secondly, uh, in 2010, and I was part of the process with this, we had we developed five majority black Senate districts. Okay, They drew none. They can't figure out how to draw one black Senate district in Detroit. They eliminated all black districts. Wait a minute. Majority whoa, 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 whoa. So Detroit, very possible. Forget Congress for a minute. It's very possible that there would be no African-American senators in the state legislature. Pot potential, potential, right, potential, potential. Yes. So the bottom line, the it, right. Well, some of the initial maps that were drawn, Detroit could be represented by somebody from Clinton Township or from Bloomfield Hills. OK, or from, from Utica. <laughs> wow, this is nuts. Let me get to other groups, though. I mean, like now Livonia's cut into five pieces. Livonia's a, a coherent community. And now you've you've drawn bands all over the place. This, this makes no sense to me. Well, first of all, remember that this commission decided to do what they wanted to do. 
One of the lawsuits protected the fact that they did, they did not publish any rules that were going to guide them. We encoded in, in the law the Bernie Abel criteria protecting communities. Okay, so They didn't follow any rules. They just decided we want to draw what we want to draw. Now, let's go to the state house things. Uh, Ten years ago, we drew 12 effective majority uh, house districts until I did an op-ed and was on Chuck Stoke show, uh, which I called you back in uh, September. They only crawled two. Now we get them up, up to six or seven. But until they were embarrassed, they weren't going to have other than two out of the 12 black districts. OK, you can't tell me that you can't find create a black house district in the city of Detroit. What they did is they basically, if you remember, you go back to the turn of the last century when our congressional district, Detroit was a spoke. And we, every district came out of Detroit. Well, basically, they repeated what used to be in the 1800s. We used Detroit to as a base of the district and then spread it out across all regions. Uh, to basically ch- share the black vote because they tend to vote more democratic to make more democratic wards or more moderate to liberal uh, districts than they did. But it's basically a possibility because all these districts are 40 to 44 percent black voting age population. As you know, that typically the black community does not get the money to run races. So all these new candidates running, uh, basically most they can raise for a house district might be twenty, thirty thousand dollars. Well, the, the, the population of Western Wayne, what we used to call the Western Wayne Mafia, they'll kick in 100,000, 200,000, be sure that they get their representative for Wayne, Westland, whatever. So that you're, and also in Detroit, you're always running against such. You look at yeah. the congressional students. You, you know, it's not that I'm against anybody running, but the point being is you put the people from Detroit in an economic disadvantage because of fundraising and also the power brokers and what they want. Okay. Let me ask this. How big is the congressional district in terms of population in Michigan? Of well, close to 800,000. Yes, yes. Okay, 800,000 people. Karen, uh, Mark, Steve, you're mutable. Wouldn't this make more sense? 800,000 people. Detroit could be one congressional district. Part of you know? one, yes. Part of one. Part right. of one. Mostly, mostly. Yes. Western Wayne County could be one. Macomb County could be one. Oakland County could be one and a half part of another. Wouldn't that make more sense in terms of who actually lives in a district and what the representative would take to Washington? Well, the law doesn't allow you to do the law doesn't allow you to do that because you have to represent it's also population equality. For example, I can use I can create the second black congressional ward using East Point War. Okay. In the southern border of Macomb County to help create that other black congressional district. Okay, you don't have to go all the way up to Pontiac. So the, the, when you're doing redistricting, we can pick up blacks from uh, southern Macomb County, southern uh, Oakland County, and we can go all the way down to Ramos. Okay, so you're not going to do that because the fact to draw you can draw a black congressional district, two of them, by taking account the black communities that are surrounding the city that left the city in population. Well, here's what I just said. I said we don't have any. No, no, okay, we don't. So the Okay, so here's one in the middle. Here's at least one. Okay, Detroit. And, they didn't even you know, do that. Well, and listen to this. Listen to this. Up. Okay, Fucked they up. hired a legal team and a, a supposedly a statistical analysis. Someone who claims ahead, well, well, you know, has all these degrees on doing all this analysis. And when she made her quotes was because one thing when you test the district, it's effective. The fact you look at vote history, voting in primaries in the past ten or 15, 20 years. She only used, according to her quotes, she only used the 2020, the 2020 general election to make her decisions. When asked about why didn't you go back 10 years, look at local primaries where blacks competed with whites, she said the data I couldn't get any, it wasn't available to me. 
How can someone who's being hired as an expert couldn't pick up the phone and call the Secretary of State? Hey, you you run me. Can they give me that voting data or call Kathy Garrett, the, the Wayne County clerk or John Winfrey to get that vote history? She said she had no access to data. OK, well, how can you and I can get it? We just call the clerks and saying, can you give me the last election or download it off the screen? She claimed all she had access to was the, the November. Well, basically, she was saying the fact well, the blacks and whites were voting the same, so whites support black voters. Well, if you're a Democrat, you're going to vote for the same damn president, president whether you're white or black. She was trying to imply that voting for Joe Biden meant that whites voted like blacks. Well, that isn't true. Look at, you know, John Connors when I ran his race in 2012. You know, we were losing to the fact that we could convert some whites to vote for John Connors as a black person. We're, we're losing in the polls, okay? Brian Bax was going to lose the first time. So the point being, the whole team that wasn't set up was designed to do one thing use the black community as pawns to achieve their political media purposes uh, when they were on this commission. Because there that's was no- that's not good for anybody. That's not good for anybody. That's not good for anybody. No, Last it question. Isn't. Last question, Ed. There's, there's gotta be a legal challenge coming. And if there is a legal challenge- It was already filed. It was filed uh, uh, you know, uh, Wednesday night by midnight. I was working with the, the team on helping them understand what they had to put in the language. That is being filed. Now, potentially, there'll be two more lawsuits. Republicans haven't said when they're going to file theirs. Uh, the Michigan Civil, uh, Civil Rights Review may be filing theirs. And another group of black community people might be all filing theirs. But right now, the one that's in there is charging that uh, basically is that the, the, the commission intentionally diluted, eliminated, or removed black voices in the state of Michigan. And the Republicans are jumping in on this. Well, yeah, because, well, well first of all, they have some political reason why they want to do this. Because well, they all do. Well, they all do what I'm saying, but their purpose is to say that they split too many. They split the Ann Arbor into two different districts and all that stuff. You know, they're going to sue for their purpose. Everybody can do this. Is what I'm saying, but the biggest, all of us agree. Those who have been doing this for 30, 40 years, Republican, Democrat, independent, whatever fact, we're all depressed. Okay, whether what color you are, the fact that we cannot believe this commission, what they did to the black community intentionally. But isn't Everybody everything agrees. that just undermines a black community intentional? I mean, when you talk about you think about black bottom, you think about redistricting, you think about all the things that are, um, you know, strategic. But that's pretty much what they are designed to do. And that's what they've effectively done. They did. Now, well, for example, in Chicago, you're right. But I'm saying the fact like in Chicago, the black community, know, I had to eliminate a black alderman seat, but not intentionally because that's the way the population shifted in the city. You know, they could have said we could have fewer black. They could have said we could have got rid of one congressional because it's be hard to draw or one Senate seat black or one. Seat. They they didn't say we have to eliminate something. They said we're going to do all of them. <laughs> That's the problem, because even black communities in Chicago said, Ed, how many black seats do we technically have to get? I says, well, to be honest with you, we're not going to be able to draw all the seats black that we used to because of a more Asians community, that type of thing. But they took everything out. And this. Again, this is the last question. We got midterms coming up. We got primaries coming up. No. Can these lawsuits be adjudicated in time? Yes. Uh, let me put it this way here. To, to, to correct these maps would not take anybody of my background or some of my background less than a week to redo all the wards and make everything legal. And 90% of the maps, we don't have to change. Yeah, remember, we're only talking about Southeast Michigan here, maybe in Flint. But the point being that this is no this is no rocket science. It can be done like like I said, I do two black congressional wards, majority and minority within an hour. Okay. It might take a little long for a state house because then my district. No, this could all be done. Secondly, the, the 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 courts can stay the primary process. In Michigan, we used to have September primaries. So so we don't move with the primaries from August to September. Detroit uh, 2011 was in September. So we have plenty enough time 
The court has to accept the case, decide to uh, uh, hire a special master, have the commission redo it or turn it over to the legislature because now we have a Democratic governor and Republican legislature. No, no plan but favors one side or the other. Uh, and this could be done within a week. Okay. Other, if you weren't doing all the legal arguments, uh, this is not, this is not, this is very easy to do because 90% of everything that's been drawn, Republicans, Democrats say, we sort of like it. It's just this whole black thing, which bothers both sides of the aisle. So this is folks out there. I know it's wonky, but it's important. Keep an eye on it. It's no bullshit news hour. Ed, what do we do? What are the, what's their feeling? The party's feeling on the duck do this new duck do. Well, the problem is the fact we have we don't know what the courts are going to do because no, it's the, no, no, the duck do the duck do. Oh, well, the, the point being is they want to know the people who are watching what no, the duck no, no, do. No, 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 the duck do. You know the duck do. Okay, you know what I'm talking okay. about. Well, you explain it in your words. The duck do. You mean what's a duck do? Yeah, what's a duck do? I'll I'll do it. What's a duck do? Quack quack. Thank you. Well, the problem is the duck do is never quacked. <laughs> <laughs> the, the dust news never quacked because, That's for example, See, okay, I'm, I'm trying gonna, to prime my man because he's the he's the coolest, funniest dude in politics. The guy knows the everything, and he's super well, cool. You know, what I'm telling you, the fact is that I was informing the ducks in back in July with op-eds, people, and data analysis systems since July. I redid it again in September and October. Even when I Chuck Stoke show to tell the ducks, here's what you need to quack about. They remained silent. Matter of fact, all the duck leaders haven't even spent time raising money for an expected lawsuit. What the, the, the lawsuit that we filed where I was part of, the people who supposedly should have been raising money for the last year or six or even two weeks ago, they have yet to raise a penny. They okay. were silent. You heard it. I'm going to leave it at that. Ed. Stay if you like. But that's a good segue because you've all been asking me, what's up? with the nursing home audit. You know, it started with my lawsuit. I'm trying to get data. Like that's what smart-minded people try to do. Numbers, not opinions, not politics, not shouting. So my lawyer from the, um, what is it, Steve? The Mackinac Center for Public Policy, right? Yes. That's correct. Now you can get to update. It's the six month anniversary of the Auditor General of Michigan taking up that count. It's been a half a year. We'll get to that. But first, our very good friend at American Coney Island, the, the true king of the Coney, Chuck Carros, passed away last week. He was 88 years old. We'd like at the end of this program to give homage to that family and to what they created here in Michigan. In the meantime, Red really got influenced by Johnny Depp's new commercial savage the christian dior cologne johnny depp's out there in the desert playing a guitar <laughs> coyotes are running around he never even puts the perfume on I, how much do you think this commercial cost <laughs> too much don't know yeah. <laughs> like two million for the super bowl five million to johnny five million for the film i mean dude <laughs> <laughs> well, when you go out so, and buy it, Chuck, you, you, Charlie, Charlie, when you go out and buy it, you know how much they paid for the ads because you won't be able to afford the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, yes. <laughs> and isn't it really like trying to convince guys to put on perfume and the guy never per puts the stuff on? Yes. So, you know, 
Coney Island is really not a hot dog. It's a sausage with natural lambskin casing. That's why they snap when you grill them. So Rhett decided for a hundred bucks to create his own commercial. He's very proud of it. He edited it. We're up late. We're talking about it. Do we want to give him, um, Mark, a little bit of the Johnny Depp? Yeah, we can. Uh, they go under Rhett? We can do that. Joe, can you sure. rule uh, just uh, so people know what Johnny Depp is hawking? In the wilderness, fearless and human. Sauvage. Sauvage. He doesn't look like a guy I want to smell like. I'd party with him in a heartbeat, man. I'd, I'd even oh, yeah. do Dior with him. Yeah, but does he, look, mean, does he look like a guy you want to smell like? <laughs> but now when you watch Red's ad, Red looks like a guy who knows how to eat. Okay, now that was Sauvage. We like to call this one Sausage <laughs> by Detroit Red. I don't know why I'm in the desert in my underpants. I don't know why these wolves are following me, <laughs> but I need sausage. The moon is high, the clubs are close, and the beast needs to be fed. Sausage. <laughs> I look in my fridge. Oh my. What do I see? Sausage. A good wiener is hard to find. So make sure you treat it kind. Sausage. You may run with a pack, but everything ain't meant to be said. Sausage. No need to cross the desert. No need to cross eight miles. Who these wolves be? Get back, bitch. <laughs> Sausage. Order a Coney kit directly to your door at AmericanConeyIsland.com. <laughs> well done. Well done. The star of that, for people that can't see that are just listening, is Red's Belly. Is front and center. The bubble bath. The bubble bath, yeah. I don't know how he figured it out, but he, he said he got up real early. Like he was, I think he did like 7 a.m. to 7 a.m. and tried to figure out a green screen and how to surround themselves with desert dunes <laughs> and wild wolves. It was worth it. It's, way to go, Red. That was good stuff. All right. Where do we hey, go hey, from here? <laughs> All right, Steve DeLee, Mackinac Center for Public Policy, my lawyer. Bro, it was a year ago that I asked the state for the nursing home data. I asked them, what is this asterisk? Who in long-term care facilities died of COVID? It was the nine-month, it's, you know, we're on the nine-month anniversary of not getting that and me asking you to sue on our behalf. It's been six months. Our findings were good enough that the state legislature, the oversight committee, asked the Auditor General of Michigan to take up an analysis and determine what the count is. That's the six month anniversary. Where are we, bro? Hmm. 
Well, that's a good question, Charlie. Um, so as you point out, it was six months ago that Representative Johnson had uh, us testify before the House Oversight Committee about this. And then in uh, June 10th is when he sent a letter to the Auditor General saying, would you take a look at this? The Auditor General responded on June 30th and said, I will do a comprehensive review. And I expect the answer sometime late uh, late September, early October. <clears throat> And there was a response in late September, early October, but that response was, we've reviewed all the deaths overall, and it turns out there were 822 more deaths everywhere in Michigan. Um, but it's going to take more time for us to take a look at the long-term care deaths. That's going to be another couple of months, and, and the timeline was late November, early December. Um, as you have no doubt noticed, it is now January, so... Uh, we are still waiting for the final review and the final numbers on that. How can this be? I mean, how could how? Why can't we press a button and no? Well, that's the million dollar question, and we I don't have a for sure answer for you on that, unfortunately. But my my likeliest pop guess is that we don't have this information readily available. In other words, it does not appear that there is a single unified database or two databases that can be easily compared to say, this is a this is a nursing home death or an adult foster care death, and this is a COVID death, and they match. If that existed, I would imagine this process could have been completed. So the fact that it hasn't been completed seems to suggest that maybe that's not the case. So here's what we do know, because you and I have been Staying working on this. This will, I'm going to say, you tell me if I'm misinterpreting or not. That we, we, they never knew. The fact of the matter is, there was nothing coherent ever to actually focus and keep track of this population. That would be, again, the skilled nursing facilities, right? Medicaid and Medicare pay for that. The adult. Uh, foster care homes, the homes for the aged, which don't provide 24-hour nursing like the nursing homes. So when we say nursing homes, we're talking about all of this. There, We're looking at the back and forth with these emails, and we find out that they're curious about it. So they've got uh, an epidemiologist, a, a data guy, trying to do some stuff on the side to catch up, but it was never, ever put in place so all this time, they were making decisions that they told us was based on data that I don't believe existed. Am I wrong there? Um, I, not wrong. I think it's just a matter of, of nuance, right? So the nursing home facilities, they never tracked before April. And in April, they started asking them to self-report. Um, the adult foster care, the homes for the aged, uh, those facilities, as long as they had 13 or more, they asked them to start self-reporting in October. And then a large portion of those facilities, those that have 13 or fewer licensed beds, still aren't required to report. And we have not seen, unless you've come across something that I haven't, we've not seen any system other than that kind of self-reporting that would validate it. So in terms of, is it automatically being tracked? If something is put in this database, does it flag this database? I've not seen any evidence of that. All I've seen is evidence of reaching out to these facilities and trying to get them to report the information that they are going to report. So to be clear, 
we may, I may have been hyperbolic, but let me, but let me just tell you for real what this is all about. Maybe everybody was honest. We hope everybody was honest. The nursing homes reported honestly, even kept track of the people they shipped to the hospital and they died there and the nursing home reported it anyway. According to that internal talking that we got, they weren't aware of it. They're not even sure. They, they don't know. We know that 55% of the other facilities weren't even required to report anything until late October. And it came in in November of 2020. Almost, almost a whole year goes by, the first real spike, and we don't know. 25% of the population has never been tracked because the state never required them to be tracked. So maybe the number comes in right. Maybe the number's wrong. That's not for us. But what Steve and I tried to do was to ask an antiquated governmental bureaucracy to get into the modern world, to fix their shit, to get their processes in place, to be able to measure the most important number, deaths among the most at-risk population. If we can accomplish that, we did something. You all out there do what you will with the number. That's not our job. But we're proud of what we did. And we hope that no matter what the number is, that they get their shit in order, just like the unemployment agency. And yes, I am receiving your emails and your messages. And I know that they're accusing you of fraud and that you didn't commit fraud and that they don't know what they're doing. That's a fact because the Auditor General did a study on that, as did the unemployment agency. There was so much waste and abuse. You weren't part of it and you're being tagged because. For decades, the state bureaucracy has crumbled and we couldn't see it. Is that true, Steve? Yeah, I mean, essentially what you said about forcing a change is exactly right. Um, as you pointed out, nobody knows what the number is right now because we're waiting on that report. But at the end of the day, your lawsuit and the emails that followed up were able to identify, essentially, we have a huge problem. And that huge problem is we don't have a centralized database for this. We're not tracking it accurately or adequately. And so even if everyone was completely honest and 100% correct, I mean, that would be a good thing. That would mean fewer, you know, we, we don't have more unknown dead. That's a good thing. Um, but it does mean that processes need to be changed and fixed so that the next pandemic, this doesn't happen again. Let me ask you a little bit about that. We've talked about the nursing homes both within and outside of the, the pandemic and the impact, the death numbers. I mean, these are facilities that have long gone um, without the proper oversight, without the proper inspection. I mean, we've talked to some folks. I mean, so, you know, we keep talking about what the pandemic did in terms of shining light on areas of disparity. And, okay, this should be a priority. I mean, their senior citizens, the elderly, the vulnerable part of our communities are in these facilities, uncared, unnoticed, unaccounted for, I mean, just with no oversight. Shouldn't that also be part of it in, in addition to being able to document these numbers from death? But just, I mean, we know that they're crap. I mean, we heard that the past two years, what's going to happen or what should happen or should that be part of what we're asking for? 
Well, I think you raise a really good point. Those two things are directly related, right? Um, if you can't even keep track of the number of residents that are coming out of these facilities and are passing away in a hospital, then what else are you not keeping track of? And I think that goes to the heart of your question. And, you know, I think that goes to show that we really need to step up the efforts to make sure that these facilities are on the up and up and aren't the kinds of facilities that are super spreaders or for uh, or that result in poor treatment of our loved ones. Um, you know, these are these are by and large homes where our loved ones or the elderly who, who don't have other loved ones to care for them are housed and they should be treated with dignity and respect. And quite frankly, I mean, it's public policy. I'm not hearing anything about overhauling, right, the at least Michigan's nursing home facilities. The federal government sent billions here, and also we get wind that $1 billion of the COVID relief money is going to go to GM to build a, a battery plant, and I'm not hearing anything about the nursing homes. And Basically, you know, if there's a ground zero, it's the nursing homes that are the biggest proportion of death. We know this, that 400,000 people a year die in nursing homes from transmitted disease. That's before COVID. How many people have died in COVID in the United States? 800,000 or something? Yeah. We throw data around. Okay. So it's been two years. We've had another 800,000 die from other stuff on any other given two years. They suck. And we're not doing anything. And I really resent in the pocket media coming after me for trying to get numbers straight. I look at Beaumont, right? We're at the breaking point. We're at the breaking point. We have 400 people out with COVID. Yeah, but you got 33,000 employees. That's 1%. Who are the 400? Are they the nurses you won't pay? Are they the orderlies that refuse to get a vaccination? Are you cutting staff? Why is everybody walking away from Beaumont, Mark? Because uh, it's been horribly mismanaged for the last about eight years, nine years. And if you go to Eric Starkman at Deadline Detroit, right, yeah. and read up on it. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're being bullshitted. Look, New York, New York is doing this. Everybody's hearing this. And I'm no COVID denier. You know why? I got it again. <laughs> I got it twice. And the backs. I want to know what's going on. New York's doing this. Oh, my God. The hospitals are filling up with, you know, COVID patients again. New York decided to do this. We're going to split it. Who's hospitalized because they have COVID as opposed to who's hospitalized and has COVID? Feel me? Yeah. Because everybody going in the hospital now with a broken arm is getting a COVID test. Yep. So you get the test, you have it, you're now a COVID patient. Oh, we're swelling up. COVID's real, man. Charlie, real. You, see, you see people, you see a lot of healthcare workers on Twitter and they're and they're telling you, you know, there is a difference. Like, you know, because there are people that are not getting the vaccine or that are leaving for other reasons. So they're understaffed. And so it appears that the system is overburdened, but they do not have the staffing for it. They're not telling you why it's that way. It's just, oh, my God, everybody has COVID. Everybody's, you know, the whole fear factor thing, like start to, you know, compartmentalize some of this information so that you can understand what we're really working with. And people don't want to do that. I read a New York Times article. And if you read the article, 
like read it, the more you read, the more you understand. It's like it's nothing like what you're being told. But people are not even listening to the people that they're listening to. And so what are you going to do, Facebook? Limit us is like, you know, mm. uh, the truthiness factor. We are the truth. We're just going against the mafia, right? From the PR firm to the media to the political parties, right? I, it, it, it doesn't matter to me which party, like you're in power, we're looking at you. This is ridiculous. It's, it's not ridiculous. even everybody's talking about the science, Charlie. Yeah, there's some science, but there's also heavy political science in what's being pushed and what's being told. And 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 we're we're so anti whoever doesn't agree with us. Uh, if, if we disagree, that's fine. Stop saying that people are stupid or dumb for not believing or doing something that you think or have somehow been convinced that you should do. And Steve's one of the guys I, I go to. Like, you know, I, I wrote something over the holidays and I get the, I'm a liar. I'm not a liar. Remember, Steve? Look, we got some data, which is in from mid-October to mid-November, Right. Of the total people that died from COVID in Michigan, 25% of them were fully vaccinated. Correct, Steve? That's what we talked about, yeah. So how is it that we're lying or, or manipulating data? Again, listen, reading the Beaumont story, because I'm not talking to Beaumont, but it's in one of the papers, the spokesperson or the doctor, the epidemiologist from Beaumont said, of the people in the hospital, right, that are COVID patients, 65% of them are vaccinated. I mean, 65% are not vaccinated. 35% are vaccinated like me. That number, you know, went from 95% effective, 68% effective, 70%, 65%. I don't know what we're in, but I know I'm frustrated. My mom's frustrated. Karen's frustrated. Steve's frustrated. Mark? I'm frustrated. Yeah. We're from mm -hmm. all, all spectrum in this country, this, this program here. We're, you're, you're bombarding us with bullshit and you're using something really serious to be making political points. And you heard Brenda. I think if I really distill what she said, I'm sick of it. I want to live my life. Is that right? Yes. I don't want this. <clears throat> That's what I took I, from it. Yeah. I just, you know, people are confused though, Charlie, and they're frustrated. I think early on, everybody had a lot of anxiety and whatever they were saying, they were listening to, you know, you're still telling people to wash their hands. Like what kind of society are we in when you're still telling people to wash their hands? Karen, that was I, I, I stopped washing my hands like five months ago, ever. I don't want to wash them. <laughs> just for but you. Saying, part of, I mean, they talked to this doctor yesterday and part of it was, you know, wear a mask, get vaccinated and wash your hands. Really, dude? Who are you talking to? Like, I, come on. And then, you, like you said, Charlie, people are getting the vaccine. Now the vaccine's not effective. Some some countries are up to their fourth or sixth vaccine. It's like people are confused and understandably so. And we're at each other's throats. Mm -hmm. Like my, my wife, understandably, is like, well, you know, you, you never wear a mask. And I say, yeah, but I had it twice. <laughs> I'm vaccinated. Um, I wear a mask when asked to. You know, I don't congregate like that. I, I, I've been doing it right. I'm one of the good guys. My wife works in a school. Most of the kids, you would assume, and it's pretty good guess, aren't vaccinated. My child goes to school. Pretty good guess. All her 
colleagues aren't vaccinated. So now it's the mask that's going to save me. No, because you're saying those aren't working either. Now, versus it was just, you know, use a scarf, use any kind of co- covering. Now that doesn't work. Now you got to go three ply. Now you got to make sure you have a thing over your nose. Now you got to test it. And can you blow out a candle? It's make this up as you go along. There are things, Charlie, I tweeted the other day. It, does a common cold even exist anymore? Hey, you hear anybody have the flu? Every no sinus issues or sinusitis. Anybody having like we've forgotten everything that has anything else to do with it. I'm not trivializing the fact that this is real. It's real. But what is the survival rate? Everybody that has COVID. I knew two people that tested positive after they've gotten the vaccine. I said, what did the doctor tell you to do? They said, stay home for five days, not 10 because they need you to go back to work, but five days and take over the counter medicine. You mean like a cold? How long am I supposed to stay in the dog cage? Depends on how long <laughs> they need you back from work, Charlie. <laughs> is it is it five days now? Is it ten? It, it was you know, ten. We were even talking about, what does asymptomatic mean? Does asymptomatic mean you have it but you're not showing symptoms? Yes. Or does it just mean you're not showing symptoms? Who knows? Mark? If you're asymptomatic, it means you have it, but you're not showing symptoms. But you can still then, spread it. Then why would you take a test? Well, well, if you were exposed to somebody that did test positive, um, you're supposed to take a test if you are exposed to someone that tested positive or you have symptoms. But the problem you know is, get a test? the problem is you can't find tests anywhere. That's the, the fuck uh, is going on, yeah. man. Okay, look, two things. It's just two things. I'll be in the dog cage. <laughs> Throw me a bone. Look, I just need two things by the time I come out of the cage. Where can I get a test? And how many old people died in these facilities? You're asking a lot, Charlie. <laughs> and I got these twats in the media and online. Man, you're twats, dude. I'm not, I'm not against it. I want the answers. I'm not parroting shit. We all want the answers. Steve, why don't we have any answers, bro? <laughs> Lots of complex data to go through, it appears. It's a complex data. Lots of graphs. It's a great graph. I don't want any more graphs. Let's give me a test. Yeah, no more graphs. Yeah. God. Ugh. All right. Look, let's, let, let, let's take this home here. <laughs> Detroit lost an icon. Chuck Carroll's the dapper high living proprietor of the American Coney Island restaurant who popularized the iconic chili dog by expanding into the suburbs and shopping malls of post-war Detroit died last week. He was 88 and our respect to his family. Among his drinking family, not his blood family, were Mayor Coleman A. Young and news anchorman Bill Bonds. The three could often be seen drinking in the Coney Island late into the night. He and actress Carol Channing would paint the town red whenever the actress was in town for a live show. With all due respect to the hundreds of dukes and duchesses out there, there was only one Coney King. And if any proof need be given, consider that Carol's funeral cortege was escorted by Detroit police officers who blocked off the downtown intersections this week around the restaurant so the king could make his final loop. Mm-hmm. And as the hearse idled outside, the family of Chuck Carroll's stepped in for a dog and a beer in his honor. Even the guys from Lafayette Coney Island next door came in with their eyes low and their hands out, offering the family a kind and sincere acknowledgement. It was a subdued scene to be sure, but not a sad one. The family's certain in the knowledge that the Almighty serves loose burgers 
and cold beers in heaven. And on that note, this was a story we did, I believe it was last year, when Chuck was still alive, and that his cousin George, who ran Lafayette next door, because Lafayette and American were came from the same family till George sold it. But there was all confusion about it. But it's a really nice history of what the Coney is, what the Caros are, and what Detroit was, is, and shall be. With that, I wish you a good day. Enjoy the lesson. George Caros, the Detroit Coney King, died four times last week. To make matters worse, the reports of his multiple deaths bubbled among family and friends of the other George Caros Coney Kings, who are related, share the same name, and also reside in the Detroit area, thus sowing confusion and despair all around as they fielded condolence calls for a man who was not their father. First death of George Caros, former proprietor of Lafayette Coney Island, occurred two weeks ago at his home in Illinois. He died peacefully at 87. The second death of Lafayette George came a week later when his passing was reported online by a local newspaper as breaking news. The story was riddled with inaccuracies, which were quickly copied and disseminated by the other news outlets. That's when the calls started pouring into the other George Caros families. The third death came the following morning when a corrected story was published in the paper's print edition, which was gratifying to the other Carol's Coney families who had been barraged with texts and voicemails. Yes, all was good, except for the fact that the photograph was not that of Lafayette George, but rather of his cousin, also named George Caros, himself the one-time prince of American Coney Island, located directly next door to Lafayette Coney Island at the corner of Michigan Avenue and Lafayette Boulevard in downtown Detroit. The two Georges were related and grew up together, but it can be accurately reported that they were, in fact, not the same person. Sadly, George of American Coney Island passed away in 2002, and now here he was, passing away again, making him our fourth George Caros of the week. Imagine the confusion of poor Chuck Caros, 83, the retired king of American Coney Island, when the morning paper arrived on his porch. Looking up at him was the picture of his brother next to the story of his cousin. It must be said that Chuck is living the latter years of old age and struggling with the difficulties that come with that. Looking down at the thin news pages, his first feelings were those of disorientation, something like an old sailor on rough, strange seas. My brother died! And then the tears flowed. Oh my God, I'm next! And then King Chuck gathered himself, wiped his eyes, poured a regal cocktail, laughed hysterically, and then canceled his subscription to the newspaper.
The story of the Karos family deserves to be properly memorialized. It stretches from the old world mountains of Greece to the bustling new world boulevards of America. They are a clan who has prospered and multiplied, changed what and how we eat, and all the while become a cultural touchstone of the Motor City. It begins in the impoverished village of Dara, when 16-year-old Konstantinos Kiriakopoulos is sent down the mountain by his father, yes, his name was George too, to the docks of Patra to make his way in America. Gust buys a ticket, boards the Francisca, and lands at Ellis Island in November 1906. Coming home from Coney Isle by Len Spencer and Ada Jones. The owner of a single pair of shoes and unable to get much going, young Gust heads to Detroit, but not before the teenager sets his dark eyes upon the electric lights of Coney Island, Brooklyn. He becomes intoxicated by its sounds and smells, its loop-the-loop -loop roller coaster, till use Ferris wheel and Charles Feltman's Coney Island hot dog emporium. Gus shines shoes, pushes popcorn on Belle Isle, and sweeps shops. He sends for his younger brother, Vasilios Billy Keros, who makes his way down in 1910, boards the SS Demostocles, and finds his way to his brother in Boomtown, Detroit. Gust and Billy try their hand in the automobile and pickling plants, but settle on hat repair and shoe shining at a small storefront at 115 Michigan Avenue near Lafayette Boulevard. They install a grill in the corner where they roast hot dogs for sale. The hot dogs catch on after Gust adds a homemade meat sauce, a proprietary recipe that is still used today. Remembering his time in Brooklyn, Gust christens his creation Coney Islands in 1917, the same year alcohol is outlawed in Michigan. Business is good at the new American Coney Island, helped along by the speakeasy and gambling tables in the basement. So good, in fact, that Billy opens his own joint directly next door in 1929, calling it Lafayette Coney Island. It is an amicable relationship. The brothers prosper and have children. Gus, the American Coney King, begets George and Chuck and Joe and Ray. Billy, the Lafayette Coney King, begets George and Tony and John. That makes two Georges and two Coney Islands on the same block, along with the arcade bar, also owned by Gust. Eventually, Lafayette George assumes the crown from his father, Billy. Likewise, Chuck inherits the American kingdom from Gust. Meanwhile, Gust's oldest son, George, lands in France during the Normandy invasion with the American armed forces then falls in love with a Parisian woman. He lives there for a few years, appears in a few French B-films, falls out of love with the Parisian woman, returns to Detroit, only to find his brother has inherited the store. As a consolation, George is given the corner bar. Meanwhile, Chuck sends for his cousin back in Greece. His name too is George, and with Chuck's help, cousin George from Greece opens his own Coney Island in the suburbs of Detroit. 
but he is another George for another time. Lafayette George eventually sells his diner to his employees, who are neither Keros's nor George's, but rather Ali and Abdija. Lafayette George is survived by his sons Bill and Stephen, his daughters Leslie, Sandra and Madeline, and five grandchildren. Much has been made of the family feud between American and Lafayette Coney Islands, but it has been wildly overstated, says Bill Carros, the son of Lafayette George. I used to be sent out on the street to steal customers from American, he recalls. Believe me, it wasn't hard. But we're family. We've always loved each other. To which his cousin, Grace Carros, the current queen of American Coney Island and the daughter of Chuck, responds, Yeah, we love each other but they were trying to steal customers. How nice was that after all we did for them? In Detroit, Charlie LaDuff, no bullshit news. It's very nice, Charlie. Opa. Very nice. Our condolences to Grace and her family. This to you, Chuck. Save me a place at the bar, bro. Steve, thanks for being here. Brenda, good luck with everything. Ed. You know what a duck does. <laughs> Get back in your cage. That's the best damn news program in the country.